going over the part of Acts that records those missionary journeys that Paul took, and, and uh, it's been exciting to see how God used him and all the places that he took him, and we learn a lot of principles of life and ministry from a lot of what he did and how he just listened to the Spirit and followed as, as God led him. And so it was great, but as we came to the end of last week, um, Paul came back to Jerusalem for the last time. Jerusalem was a really special place for any Jewish person, and it certainly was for Paul. He had gone to graduate school there with Gamaliel and was a Pharisee, and so was really into being in Jerusalem. And now he was going there for the last time. Everyone had warned him, as we saw, they're, they're plotting against you there, they're going to arrest you, this isn't going to go well at all, and yet... Paul just was certain that God was calling him to do this, and, um, and as it turned out, you really can't argue with that, because God gave him an opportunity to testify to um, the most powerful people in the world through what would happen. But last week we saw there was really a misunderstanding. He went to the temple, he went through the rite of purification and stuff, and he went to the temple and they had seen him earlier with a Gentile, um, and they thought that he had brought him into the temple. He, he really didn't. Uh, it makes it clear that he didn't bring him into the temple, but they kind of thought that he had brought Trophimus from Ephesians um, with him. And so that was the occasion whereby they started rioting and, and just furious with him and charged him, and the poor Roman officials were just trying to keep the peace, and uh, so they grabbed him to try to rescue him, and as they were yanking him out, he, he asked if he could talk to the people, as they were saying, you know, away with him, and, and in the end of chapter 21, Paul said, can I speak to you, uh, to, the, to the commander, and he spoke to him in Greek, and the guy was kind of confused about who Paul was, he goes, no, I'm a Jew. Um, and, you know, a Roman citizen, and so he asked if he could speak to the Jews because they were the ones that were upset. So at the end of chapter 21, it says that Paul began to speak to them in Hebrew, which surprised them. They, most of them didn't know what was going on. They were, they were worked up because of the leaders who were spurring them on to this, but... Um, you know, they had heard this was some horrible apostate person was bringing Gentiles, defiling the temple and things like that. And so, um, and so he just said, let me talk to these guys. And for the Romans, they pretty much knew that there was a problem and it had something to do with Jews, but they didn't have a way to really communicate very clearly with the Jews. And so um, they were open to him just going ahead and trying to do what he could do. And he spoke in Hebrew. And now most of the rest of the book of Acts is going to be Paul giving speeches. And they're often called his defenses, but in reality you don't really see Paul defending himself very much. What you really see him doing is sharing his testimony over and over again here in these last several chapters. And it's really, that was his heart. He, he wasn't interested in getting himself out of trouble. He was only interested in being able to share what God had done in his life and, and the, the glorious gospel of grace. And so that was his interest in each case in all of these addresses. And so it gives really some beautiful 
um, illustrations of sharing with people what God has done. So in chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, he's speaking in Hebrew to the Jews. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they were quiet. They were like, what? And he said, yeah, you heard me right. I'm speaking Hebrew. I am indeed a Jew. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. So he lets them know, I was born and raised in Tarsus. Tarsus at that time was the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. Um, Corinth and Athens had seen their better days. Alexandria wasn't technically a part of the empire, but it also hadn't advanced to the point that it would uh, 100 years later. Tarsus was the best place to be educated, and so he let them know. I went to school in Tarsus. Then I came and did graduate school here, right here in Jerusalem, with Gamaliel, one of the top uh, rabbis and teachers that they had. And he, and he goes, up, strictness of the law, absolutely. I was zealous toward God as you all are today. And it's interesting that he, whoever he shares with, he tries to build a bridge. He tries to find something that they have in common. He doesn't just get up and say, you're wrong, I'm right. He doesn't get up and just say, okay, here's where we differ. But he, he repeatedly contacts people, and he doesn't water down the truth at all. It's just that he starts where they have something in common. And that's a good lesson for all of us, really. If you're going to talk to someone, find out where you're alike. Don't just jump to where you're different right off the bat. I'm convinced that so much more could have been done, so many people could be reached for Christ, if we would just learn this basic principle that we have things in common with everyone in this world. And if we find those things, we can make connections and for many of them be able to really introduce them to the gospel. And so he, he starts out that way and he says, I persecuted this way. That's what they called the, the church. A lot, a lot of people called it the way in those days. And so Paul refers to it as that several times. Um, and I, you know, I know a lot of people in the church who are definitely in the way. But uh, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, he signed the paperwork, and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. So he goes, look, you guys are ready to tear somebody up for teaching Christianity. I understand where you're coming from because even more than most of you, I've been a one-man riot going after Christians, destroying them. I'm an educated Jew. As you can tell, I speak fine Hebrew. And I, I'm, as a Pharisee, as somebody who had real righteous standards, I know, I know how you feel. I know what you're, what you're talking about. But, he said, it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. 
And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, here in verse 9, there are people who are just love to try to find some place where the Bible contradicts itself, and they go back to Acts chapter 9, where it says that the people who were with them heard a noise, and, and here it says they didn't hear the voice. Um, it's a different word. The idea is putting, them two, putting the two together. They heard a noise, but they couldn't tell what it was saying, and so that's no big problem at all. But but the voice was speaking to him, and so he's the one who heard it. And so I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus, a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. He goes, he was a good Jewish guy too. He came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one, the Messiah, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And so up until this point, how could they complain about it? He's just telling them his story. And we've heard the story before and we'll hear it again. Paul loved telling about what happened. Because how can you argue? I was on my way working for the high priest. I'm trying to go to persecute Christians. And I get knocked down. And I hear this voice, and now I'm blind. And then I go into town and find the guy that the voice told me to go find. And he touches me, and he heals me, and he tells me I have a job to do. The implication is, what would you do if that happened to you? This happened to me as a perfectly good Jew. Um, there are a lot of people today, and I've met several, who in the course of doing their religious duties in another religion were suddenly touched by the Lord. And that's something that, you know, I haven't, uh, you know, when I came to accept the Lord, I felt that the Lord was speaking to me, but I didn't see any light, and I didn't really hear a voice. It was just something that I knew in my heart. But I, like Chom No, our uh, friend and missionary over in, in Cambodia, um, Chom No was training as a Buddhist monk. And it was the day before he was going to become a full-fledged Buddhist monk. And up until that point, everything that he had been oriented toward was Buddhism for his whole life. And he was in the, he was in the temple, Buddhist temple, by himself, and he heard a voice speaking to him. And the voice said, I'm Jesus, and I'm God, and you need to know me. Now, what do you do? You hear something like that so clearly, and... For Chom No, what he did is he thought, i got to find out about this Jesus. So he went outside and he found the first Westerner that he could find. And he said, can you tell me about Jesus? And they said, well, um, my brother's a missionary here. Let me go and introduce you to him. And so 
brought him over and the guy led him to the Lord. Obviously, he got kicked out of the monastery and everything, but that began his journey as a Christian missionary and a pastor, and God just used him. He owned a little restaurant and at that point didn't know what to do, but he just started witnessing and sharing and helping the little villages along the border between Cambodia and Thailand, um, ministering to the people who had killed his family, the Khmer Rouge. And, you know, that wasn't that long ago, and yet he's devoting his life to serving these people. And when you hear that story, and Chum knows this little humble guy, he's not cashing in on anything, it's a powerful witness because, like, you're going completely against everything that you're indoctrinated toward. And, and how can you argue with something that causes you to go and devote your life to people who killed your family um, and left you an orphan? And, and so, and, you know, you, we might go, yeah, how'd you accept the Lord? Oh, I was at a harvest crusade. You know, I was a little church, I came and walked the aisle, or I heard somebody on the radio and I gave my heart to the Lord. What do you say to a guy who says, well, I was in the middle of doing my duties as a Buddhist monk and I found Jesus in a Buddhist monastery. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with it. And that's the same kind of thing that Paul is sharing with them. Look, put yourself in my place. This is what happened. What would I do? There are a lot of of Muslims nowadays, and I've met several of them who have such a similar story that they were devout Muslims in, in the mosque, and they heard Jesus speak to them. They accepted the Lord. And it's happening all over the place. Um, it's fascinating to me, really amazing. God doesn't, he doesn't discriminate He'll go wherever he needs to go in order to draw people to himself. And it's a powerful testimony that in the middle of being against Jesus and hating him and trying to destroy him and having all those qualifications and all those credentials, what would it take to turn your life around? I mean, this wasn't just a whim. Nobody talked Paul into it. The Christians wouldn't even talk to him. Nothing had touched him. He stood there coldly in charge as Stephen was stoned to death. And that didn't seem to move him until obviously much later. So he's just going, look, this is just what happened. And so he said, uh, uh, verse 16, Ananias says to him, and what are you waiting for? Get up and get baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. At this point, Paul hadn't really made this commitment to Christ. It wasn't baptism that would wash away his sins, but baptism was the sign of his sins being washed away. And so, the, you know, here Ananias is just going, why don't you get saved and get baptized? And so, uh, and call in the name of the Lord. So he says, now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. So he goes back to Jerusalem He's like, man, I need to get close to God. Praying in the temple, I was in a trance. I was like spaced out, and I saw Jesus saying to me, hurry up, make haste, and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So he says, I'm in the temple, doing what I always did, and the same voice that I had heard 
on the road to Damascus says, you know what, these people aren't going to listen to you, you better get out of here. Again, how can you argue with that? Okay, I, I heard that, that was my experience. No reason to make it up. Paul could have been very successful if he had just stayed apart from Christianity as a Jew. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So he's going, the only place I'm safe is in Jerusalem. If I go anywhere else, the Christians will kill me because I hassled them. I, I put them in prison. I was responsible for murdering them. So, Lord, what do you want me to do? Safest place for me is here in the temple because this is who I was working for when this happened. Then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Up until this point, the Jews were okay. I mean, the Jews are very open to um, various revelations from God. They're very, they're very open to different experiences. The Jews have a deep tradition of mysticism and that kind of stuff. So, okay, guys hearing voices, no big deal. But now he says, I'm in the temple, and this voice tells me, I want you to go to Gentiles. The Jews just thought the Gentiles weren't worth anything. They considered them to be worse than animals. And so when they heard him say this, and he, he waited to get around to it, but they didn't respond really well. And so they listened to him until this word, until the word Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, you think our politicians get worked up in these elections. <laughs> these guys really got into it. And then the commander, who was a Roman officer, we find out later his name was Claudius Lysias, but he ordered him to be brought into the barracks and uh, said that he should be examined under scourging, beating him, so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So here, Paul is saying these things in Hebrew. In Hebrew, um, Claudius doesn't understand it, but all he knows is whatever this guy said, it was going good for a while, and then all of a sudden it went really bad. So he said, get him locked up so the crowd doesn't tear him apart, and beat him until he tells you what he said that made these people so mad, because he didn't understand it. And so uh, as they bound him with thongs, uh, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, one of the soldiers who's in charge of a hundred men, hey, uh, and he said this no doubt in Greek, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? See, they, didn't, they thought that he was either an Egyptian or just a, a Jewish guy. They had no idea that he was a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had a great deal of rights, and actually the Roman system of government was, was a pretty good one. Um, our government in many ways is, is based on some of their principles. But the problem with the Roman government, and you see this, remember it was the Roman government that ended up condemning Jesus to death, and they're the ones who will end up putting Paul in jail for years without any charges being filed. 
The problem wasn't with the government. The problem was with the application of the government. You get bad people in a good government, and they do really bad things. And that's true around the world. Having the right form of government is just a start. Um, from there, it helps if you actually have good people. But the problem is, today, as in those days, frankly, good people don't get into power politically. If you do what it takes to become a successful politician, you've already sold your soul to the devil, basically, in a lot of ways. Sorry, I'm sorry if anybody here is a city council member in Aliso Viejo. I'm not talking about that level of government. But, I mean, to get into power, it just takes massive compromise. And it was the same in those days. It usually involved killing people, cheating, stealing, and things like that. But the government was, had a decent form of government, and, and they touted democracy. And if you were at least a citizen, you had certain rights. So for him to say, so you can beat me like this, even though I'm a citizen and I haven't been condemned of any crime, well, Roman citizens had a right to face their accusers, to mount a defense, and to be found guilty before they would be beaten. If you weren't a Roman citizen, they could just pretty much beat you for anything. Um, it's like being a kid. But, but uh, you know, when you grow up, you have certain rights, and as Roman citizens, no, you just can't hit me just because. So he asked that, and the centurion, uh-oh, he went and told the commander and said, uh, be careful what you do, this man is a Roman. So this commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman, a citizen? And he said, yes. And the commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. He said, look, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. He, he wasn't, this commander wasn't born as a Roman. He bought his way into citizenship. And probably his idea is, I know how much it costs to become a citizen. If you're a citizen, you must have some money, and maybe you can grease my palm and I can make this problem go away. Very common in those days. But Paul said, I was born a citizen, which trumps buying citizenship any day. Then immediately, those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had tied him up. So they didn't know what to do. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he was demanding, you know, the guy's like, come on, what's going on? He released him from his handcuffs, and he commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So this commander is just trying to get to the bottom of it. So he goes, bring the Jewish leaders in here, and we'll make Paul sit here, and I'm going to find out what's going on. See, this commander worked for the Roman government. All the Roman government wanted was peace. They did the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And they didn't care how they got it, but they didn't want these little riots. And the Jewish people have a great history of rioting and things like that. They had a lot of rebellions and all. And so he's just going, I need to calm this down or I'm going to be in trouble with my bosses. And so he got everybody together and and chapter 23, Paul looking earnestly at the council. He knew a lot of these guys. He had been a part of this council previously. And he said, men and brethren, he's very respectful at this point, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. He said, all my life I've tried to follow my conscience as God 
leads me. And at that point, the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Just, just for saying he's always tried to do the right thing. This shows you that it was kind of a kangaroo court at this point. Um, and after he got hit in the mouth, Paul said to him, to Ananias, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? So right away lashes out at the high priest. Now, the next thing is, those who stood by said, are you going to revile God's high priest? And so, I mean, obviously you don't speak disrespectfully to the high priest, was the idea. And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul says, sorry, I didn't know he was the high priest. Over in Exodus, it says you should never speak evil of the ruler of the people. And so I take it back. It's hard to say whether Paul knew that it was the high priest or because or, he doesn't actually just say, you know, say definitely, um, oh, sorry, I didn't recognize you. You would think Paul would know who the high priest was. He had been functioning in that area. But there's a, there's a good chance that, uh, and, you know, Paul had a problem with his eyes, perhaps even going back to having been blinded when he got saved. And later he makes a lot of mentions of having problems with his eyes, and he always used an amanuensis to write his letters. Um, and if he wrote anything on the end of it, he wrote it in big letters so, so you know, he could see it. Um, and so uh, perhaps at this point already he couldn't make out or see that, that this guy was the high priest, or perhaps he was being sarcastic. You know me, you know which way I hope it was. But at any rate, you know, I, it is important to note what he quotes there from Exodus, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. The rulers of their people were really bad people. And from the religious leaders to the political leaders and everything else, you can do with this what you want, but I really try, and it's not easy sometimes, but I really try to abide by that. If someone is a leader, I may not have respect for the man or the woman who is in that position, but I think we're supposed to have respect for the position. And I, and I really don't think it's the heart of God to be bad-mouthing and insulting and making fun of and, and putting down people who are the leaders over our people. The, the Bible says not to do that, and you might go, yeah, but I mean, that was before Obama. And I would say, yeah, this was under Nero, okay? So, um, but, <laughs> but really, I, I do think, you know, when someone's our leader, we should respect that position. And, and to be very cautious and not to be presumptuous and speaking against leaders. Being a leader is a tough place to be. And the truth is, we can all look at our governmental leaders right now and tell all the stupid things they're doing, but I don't think any of us really has a good solution. You can see that when our government changes. I mean, look at how, as this government was running for office, boy, they had all the answers. But now that they're in office, they're doing the same thing that 
that the Bush administration was doing before in almost every case, from the stimulus package to the expanding the war in Afghanistan to all sorts of things. It's not as easy to run a country, to run anything as you think it is. It's not as easy to run a church as people think it is, or a business or anything else. And so I think we should respect the position of anyone who's in a position of leadership regardless of what you may think of them personally. But verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part of the council was Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, it gave him an idea. Now in this case, he he knew that with these Jewish leaders here, Jesus had already told them, you're not going to get anywhere with these guys. So now he's not sharing his testimony and trying to reason with them because they knew he knew it was just a kangaroo court and they were just trying to get him convicted. So he very cleverly noticed some of these guys are Sadducees and some of them are Pharisees. Pharisees and Sadducees in those days for the religious leaders were like the conservatives and the liberals. Pharisees were very conservative. And they believed, they were like, the real Orthodox Jews, where they had a very strong stand in the law and, and were very fundamental. Sadducees were more liberal, took a loose interpretation of things. In fact, one of the big distinctions between Pharisees and Sadducees is that Sadducees <coughs> didn't even believe in resurrection. They believed that when you die, that's it. Pharisees believed in resurrection and things like that. So right away, Paul just thought, okay, I'm going to turn these guys against themselves. It's a, good, it's a good approach to take when people are attacking you as if you can get them to turn on each other. Sometimes you can slide out the side door. And that's sort of what he was trying to do. So he said he picked aside the Pharisees, who he knew best, and he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So he goes, you know what this is all about? I believe in resurrection. But I'm a Pharisee. My dad was a Pharisee. That's always what we were taught. And that's what these Sadducees have against me. And so right away, the Pharisees started thinking, hey, maybe he's not such a bad guy. When he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. They didn't believe in anything supernatural, but the Pharisees believe in both of them. Now, the the Pharisees would be much more open to a guy hearing a voice. Sadducees would be like, come on, that's silly, that's superstitious. Don't hear any voices. And so this made a real division, and there was a loud outcry between the Pharisees and Sadducees. Imagine this poor Roman commander He calls these Jews in here thinking he's going to get to the bottom of it. And now Paul says a couple things, and now they're fighting with each other. And there was such a loud outcry, the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested. They said, hey, we find no evil in this guy. We like this guy. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. They had the attitude, hey, he's just saying he heard a voice. Maybe it was an angel. Let's just let this thing slide. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force, 
from among them and bring him into the barracks. They go, this isn't working. Go lock him up until I can figure out what I'm going to do. In the meantime, the following night, the Lord came to Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. A lot of people criticize Paul for going back to Jerusalem against the advice of a lot of people, and they say it was a big mistake for him to go there. But it sounds like Jesus was all for it, because he was using this whole thing to get Paul a trip to Rome, courtesy of the Roman government. And so Jesus just came and told him, don't worry, Paul, you're going to make it to Rome. I'm telling you, that's where you're going. That's why later you see when you know, they got in a shipwreck, Paul said, don't worry, I'm going to Rome. I'm not going to Malta. I'm not going to go die in the Mediterranean Sea. Jesus told me personally, I'm going to Rome, and that's where I'm going. <clears throat> he has told us personally that since he has begun a good work in us, he's going to complete it. He has a perfect image of who you are going to be and who I am going to be. He has this incredible plan. And sometimes along the way, we feel like it's never going to happen. It's never going to come together. I'm never going to amount to anything. And as Paul had this dream for a long time of just wanting to go to Rome, and he knew, I mean, Rome was running the world, and if I could go share the gospel there, what, a, what an impact that would have. I'm convinced that God gives us dreams like that, that he causes us to, to think of things that are way beyond what, what would be realistic. God is, seems so unrealistic by our standards because um, he can do anything. So when, you can do, when you're omnipotent, <laughs> you can come up with some wild ideas and make them happen. And you know, I just want to encourage you, if God has ever laid something on your heart and you have a real desire and something that you just feel like, I, I, I see this picture of myself, I see this plan, I, I see how my life, I, how I want it to be, and and what would just be amazing if this could happen, <clears throat> don't give up on your plans. Don't give up on the dreams that God has given you and the desires that he's given you. He promises to give you the desires of your heart. And yeah, you have setbacks. Paul would have a bunch. But Jesus just came to him and let him know, don't worry, I finish what I start. So if God has started with you and he's given you you know, uh, a, a vision, a picture of where you're headed and what he wants to do. Don't give up on that because it seems like you're kind of off track right now or, oh, something happens that really stalls it or, I don't know, I'm getting older. I don't know if this is ever going to happen. Now, God always should have permission to take what we want and to tailor it to what's best for us. But whatever God has for you, if it isn't what you want it to be, it's going to be better than that. So believe that and hear his voice and go to him and let him reassure you that nothing messes him up. Nothing causes him to, <clears throat> to go, oh shoot, I can't do it now. I wanted to, but you did something stupid or somebody else did something mean or, or you're getting old or the economy or whatever. And so I'll never be able to finish what I started in your life. 
He wants to come to you. He wants every one of us to know right now the plans that he has for us are amazing. And if he told us what, we're, what he was going to do, we probably wouldn't even believe it. But he gives us little hints, little things along the way, and we flounder along and try to do the best we can. But I promise you, God has better plans for you than you could ever dream of. And if you see what God is going to do, it would just blow your mind. And because of the kind of God he is, don't ever give up. Don't ever just feel like it's all over. And maybe there's people in your life who won't even talk to you and you love them. Don't give up. You know, God will do what he's going to do. He's not going to take people's will away from them. Sometimes it means that, you know, you, a, a relationship gets disrupted that God wanted to bless. And so God says, hey, if you're willing, I can do better than that. <clears throat> I can give you more than that. But when you get where you're going, Jesus would say, see, I always knew it. And why did you doubt? What were you worried about? I know what I'm doing. This is going to be really, really good. And I, and I think that if we believe in, in Jesus, we should be the most optimistic people in the world because he can do anything. And he loves us so much. And so it's nice that Jesus came to Paul personally because he was locked up in jail and looked like everybody there wanted to kill him. But Jesus came and said, don't worry, you're going to Rome. You'll see. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath and said that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. You know, 40 guys got together and said, we're either going to kill Paul or we're going to starve to death. Nice. <laughs> and there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. And <clears throat> they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Notice the leaders didn't do this. This was some other suckers. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So these 40 guys came to the Jewish leaders, and they said, tell him you want to talk to Paul again, and we'll kill him when he's on the way. You can see why Jesus thought he better talk to Paul before this happened. So when Paul's sister's son, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, so guys were talking about it, he went and entered the barracks and he told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this kid to you, he has something to say to you. And then the commander took the little boy by the hand and went aside and said privately, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, they're waiting for the promise from you. So Apparently the commander had already said, yeah, I'll bring him tomorrow. So this Paul's nephew hears about it, comes and tells the guy, I'm just tipping you off. And it's, it's cool the way God did this. He used a kid. 
A lot of times when he can't find an adult that has their act together, he just uses a kid. And so he comes and he tells the commander. Now, <clears throat> if this had happened, the commander's you know, calling Paul up and, and it was a setup and he ends up being killed. This commander is going to look really bad to the authorities. And so he figured, oh, I can't have this. I can't have a lynch mob. And so he figured, I better do something else. And uh, so uh, he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers. So he gets two guys that each were over 100 soldiers. And then he got 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea in the middle of the night and provide a horse to put Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he goes, I, I better send this to my superior. His superior was Felix, who was ruling from the, the um, garrison there in Caesarea. If you remember from the map, Caesarea is about halfway up the coast of Israel, right there on the Mediterranean Sea. It was the, the Roman leaders loved hanging out in Caesarea. It's a beautiful place, just a resort. Herod the Great had built just an incredible castle there. They had sporting events. There's a big amphitheater. It's really, it's one of the most stunning sites to me in Israel. Um, and so he's, he said, I'll send them up to Felix and let him worry about it. I need out of this. So all these soldiers went and took Paul in the middle of the night and and um, Claudius Lysias wrote this letter and said, To the most excellent Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. <laughs> Actually, he learned that after. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. <coughs> I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but nothing deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So he sends Paul with this note and making it look like, you know, I did everything right. There was this problem. The Jews were doing it. I tried to find out what happened. Couldn't get to the bottom of it. So I'm sending them to you, and I'm going to send the accusers to you, and I know you'll be able to figure this out. Festus, um, Felix was much more attuned to Jewish ways. And again, as the superior, it's like you just want to bail out on this thing. And so he sends him this letter, along with Paul and all these soldiers who took him, and it says that the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul, brought him by night to Antipatris, which is partly on the way, and then they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. A couple hundred soldiers delivered him. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, which is the province that Tarsus is from, and so this was within his jurisdiction, he said, I'll hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, uh, the headquarters there. So Felix goes, okay, yeah, I'll listen to you, but I don't want to talk to you until I find out what you're being accused of. Those guys will come from Jerusalem. They can't like just kill you here, and we'll get to the bottom of this. Don't worry. 
So then um, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders, and they brought a certain orator named Tertullus. Tertullus was a, a really outstanding speaker, as you can even see from his little speech, basically a hired gun, basically a lawyer that they got to come and, and handle the prosecution of this thing. And uh, they were going to give evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. <laughs> Buttering him up right away. And, and Felix, by the way, in the account here in Acts that Luke wrote, Felix comes out looking like a pretty decent guy. But in actuality, he was a real dirtbag from, from extra-biblical literature, we find out. He was a horrible, cruel man um, who had at one time been a slave, and he killed people, and he fought his way into getting a government job, and partly by marrying... Um, Herod Antipas's daughter and uh, Drusilla and so he, he wasn't a good guy but remember Luke is writing this to a member of the Roman government Theophilus and so he doesn't bag on the guy and then this this Tertullus comes and he's just totally kissing up to to Felix oh you know you're great we have all this peace and prosperity everything's wonderful and it's all because of your wisdom we're so grateful. However, not to be tedious to you any further, I don't want to, you know, I really just came here to tell you how wonderful you are, but I have one other little thing I want to mention. I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Nazareth was podunk town. Nazareth was considered, if you were from there, you were nothing. And so he goes, this guy, he, he, he's really creating trouble. And by the way, you know what those people are like from Nazareth. And he even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him, and we wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. Right away, he, he's trying to make it look like this Lysias really mishandled this whole thing. It was, you know, we were just wanting to talk to him. And he came and grabbed him and it created a big stir. Commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. Look at the guy. You can tell he's guilty. And the Jews also assented. They were like, yep, yep, maintaining these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, what do you have to say? He answered, inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Man, you've been around for a long time. I know you'll be able to understand this. Uh, so, you know, let me, let me talk to you. You may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. He goes, 
I was only there 12 days ago, and I went there to worship. That's all. I just went to go to the temple. So, I mean, how much of a stir could I have made in such a short time, and what kind of motives would I have to go worship there if I'm some awful person? And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone or inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. There was no problem. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. The people who came to accuse him weren't even the people who saw him or dealt with him. So these guys aren't witnesses. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect or cult, so I worship the God of my fathers. It's true. But it's the God of my fathers. I'm still a Jew. Believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. He goes, look, I'm one of these guys. They've turned on me, but I, I haven't turned on my heritage. I'm just worshiping the way I always have, going to the temple. He said, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept. We worship the same God. That there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Because I believe in the resurrection. Most of these guys do too. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. You know, because of what's happened to me, I try to do the right thing before God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. I came to Jerusalem to bring an offering. He had collected money from the churches and wanted to bring it. And he said, in the midst of which, some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. He goes, the guys who stirred up the whole strife were from Asia. They weren't from Jerusalem. They came down and made the problems. I was bringing money to Jerusalem. And he said, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Tell them why I wasn't convicted. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them, Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. So he said, this is all about the resurrection. And by the way, to this day, Christianity is all about the resurrection. That's why we make a big deal about Easter. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, like Paul told the Corinthians, we got nothing. We have nothing. It's all about the resurrection. And so Paul cut to the chase, this is really about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, what can you say to that? If he didn't, why are we even bothering talking about this? And so he zeroed in on that fact. And I think when we talk to people about the Lord, we should get to the resurrection as soon as possible like Paul did. Because that's something that's really hard to argue about, to argue with. To talk about thousands of witnesses seeing Jesus after he died a horrible death. And then they were all willing to give their lives rather than to recant their testimony. It's tough to argue with that. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is what separates Christianity from every other faith. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is what makes it possible for us to rise from the dead. I mean, who cares about a religion that just leaves you dead? This is one that leaves you alive forever. And the resurrection is one of the most easily provable facts in all of history. 
It's foolish to deny the resurrection. In fact, when everyone was trying to crush Christianity, there was no one, as far as that goes, in the first 300 years of church history, no one ever tried to argue that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There was that frail attempt at first where they claimed that somehow, you know, the disciples stole the body away with hundreds of soldiers guarding the tomb. You know, later people came up with stupid theories that, oh, maybe he wasn't really dead and somehow his body's all wrapped up in cloth and he was able to push a big stone out of the way and come hopping past hundreds of soldiers without anybody noticing him after he had lost all his blood and bled out on the cross. No one has mounted a serious threat to the, to the veracity of the resurrection. And so Paul just goes right there because he knew nobody could come up and say, no, he didn't rise from the dead. So he goes, this is all just about the resurrection. That's it. And why would Fe Felix doesn't care? Rose from the dead, cool. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he knew a little bit more now about Christianity, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I'll make a decision on your case. So he wanted Lysias to come down and confirm if this is what had happened or not. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So he put him basically under house arrest. Paul rented a house and people could come and visit him. He needed to stay there, but he, you know, basically Felix goes, I'm not going to make this difficult on you at this point. And so after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So this got his attention and Felix um, and Drusilla said, tell us a bit more about this. This is, this is fascinating. And so Paul, again, had an opportunity to share his testimony with Felix, to tell him about the resurrection, to tell him what had happened and what this was all about. And, and Felix seemed interested, which is interesting because, like I say, Felix was a horrible person, um, as was Drusilla. Drusilla's dad, Herod Antipas, is the one who killed James earlier in the book of Acts. And her uh, great-grandfather was the one who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, Herod the Great. Um, he was not a good guy. One of her ancestors was the one who, who beheaded John the Baptist. So, but they're, they're listening. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Paul kind of took an approach that he said, there is right and wrong. <laughs> and, you know, that bothered Felix because he knew how much wrong he had done. And he knew he wasn't able to do right even if he wanted to. And he talked to him about self-control, something that they had very little of. And everyone wants it. Everyone becomes frustrated when they can't do what they want to do. And the judgment to come, which would be of a great concern if you even believe that maybe there's an afterlife, what's going to happen to me there? Felix was afraid, and he said, go away for now. I've heard enough. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. There are a lot of people who are waiting for a convenient time to deal with Jesus. Felix was that way. He just bought his time. I don't want to talk about it right now. You'll see people who do this. Um, 
unfortunately, you know, the Bible says now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. You may not have it tomorrow. And if you're thinking, well, this is interesting stuff, all the stuff about Jesus and the resurrection and Paul, and it's cool, but I'm not really ready to commit yet. Well, what will it take? And why would you want to risk being wrong on something like this when God is offering salvation for free? He's, he's not asking anything from you. He's just saying, I have a gift I want to give to you. But Felix was like, well, we'll think about it. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. Uh, Felix kept thinking, I'm sure he's going to offer me a bribe at some point. No doubt Felix would have let him go had Paul offered a bribe. Um, but just think of this guy Felix having all these personal meetings with Paul, what he heard and what he is accountable for today. And if he continued to reject it, we certainly don't know that he did or didn't, but he was just, Paul was just sharing with him the truth of the gospel over and over again, never paid him off. And, but they conversed. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Paul's in jail for two years. Felix is talking to him. They're kind of waiting for, to put, file charges against him. They still hadn't charged him with a crime. They still couldn't even agree what he had done, and yet he kept him in jail. Um, that was totally against Roman law. But again, you get a bad leader with a good law, you get bad things happening. And so now Felix's term as governor was up, and, um, and Festus, Portius Festus, succeeded him. And so, uh, you know, that brings up a whole other guy that Paul has to deal with. And Paul just wants to go to Rome. Imagine how frustrating it is sitting there in jail for two years to find out nothing. But he was sharing with, with Felix. So at this point, Festus had come to the province. Oh, by the way, Felix, it says he wanted to make the Jews happy, so he didn't release me. He could have released Paul anytime he wanted to. But, and it wouldn't have been an unusual thing when a guy goes out of office to go ahead and pardon some people. But he was still kissing up to the Jews. And so when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. He just went to Jerusalem to check things out. The high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul and petitioned him. And they said, hey, bring Paul to Jerusalem. And, and then they said, you know, they, inside they were going, we'll lay an ambush along the road and we'll kill him. But Festus probably heard of their plan or just could tell. And so he said, hey, we'll keep him at Caesarea and uh, I'm going go to go to Caesarea pretty soon. I'll look into it. And he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And down is always up on their map the way we look at it. He went north to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he said, bring Paul in here. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul. They couldn't prove any of them. Obviously, two years had gone by, and it was still about an event that they had lied about. Well, he answered for himself, 
neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. He said, I didn't break Jewish law. I didn't break Roman law. I didn't do anything wrong. What are you accusing me of? And I mean, Paul, as an educated Roman citizen, would have known the law pretty well. As an educated Jewish leader, he certainly knew Jewish law better than these stooges that came up there to try to lie against him and convict him, and so he made a strong case. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, he didn't want these guys mad, he answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? You willing to go to Jerusalem and go on trial? And Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. Look, I'm here in the Roman court where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, and you know that. For I am an offender or have, uh, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I don't mind dying. Hey, if I deserve to die, kill me. I don't, I'm not worried about death. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. And him making the decision to appeal to Caesar, all of a sudden now that takes away Festus's ability to either let him go or take him to Jerusalem and try him. Because once a Roman citizen demanded to appear before Caesar, he'd be allowed to do that. And Caesar is the Supreme Court. And so at this point, Paul says, nope, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. And it's not because I don't want to die. I don't care about dying. I want to go to Rome. And inside he's thinking, I know that I'm going to Rome. Jesus said I would. So I appealed to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, you've appealed to Caesar? Then to Caesar you shall go. This was a good way for him to get off the hook because it's like to the Jews, hey, sorry, I can't do anything. Appeal to Caesar. It's in his hands. Take it up with Caesar. He knew they wouldn't go all the way to Rome to try to get him in trouble. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice, his wife, came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now this is Festus's immediate boss, the king of that region, Agrippa. And when they had been there many days, Festus, they ran out of stuff to talk about, and Festus laid Paul's case before the king and said, there's a certain man who Felix had as a prisoner, and the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. And to them I said, hey, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to death before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I suppose. So he's telling King Agrippa, I tried to handle this thing, brought the Jews down. It's just a bunch of nonsense. They, they weren't bringing any charges at all. But had some questions against him about their own religion, um, about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, he didn't really know about them. Agrippa had a much greater knowledge of, of Judaism than, than did Festus. And he goes, I, you know, I didn't know about all this stuff. And so I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and be judged there. But 
when Paul appealed to, to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. So he goes, he wants to go to Caesar, so I'm waiting till I can get a ship that's heading to Rome and I'll send him there. Then Agrippa said to Festus, yeah, I also would like to hear the man myself. He had probably heard about Paul. He said, tomorrow you'll hear him. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. <laughs> Imagine that scene. Here's King Agrippa with all of his pomp and circumstance, his wife, their fancy things, all the horns that would blow as they were walking in, in this beautiful courtroom there in Caesarea, gorgeous, big columns, majestic building. And so they all come in, and then they bring in this little tiny Jewish guy, very short, huge nose, eyes that were running all the time. He had been in prison for years, looked a mess, no doubt. And it's like, here's this little guy, and here's this king. But you see who, who runs the show. It's, it's pretty impressive. Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man. Look at this guy. I mean, what, what kind of a threat is he? And you see him. And the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. The Jews weren't there to accuse him at this point. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. He goes, here's the problem. <laughs> He's appealed to Caesar. I have to send him to Rome. I don't even know what he did. I don't even get this at all. And I can't send him and just say, oh, here's a guy who's appealing to you. And Augustus is going to go, appealing for what? Uh, I don't know. So he's saying to Agrippa, maybe you can get something out of him. Maybe there's some, something you can pen down, and then I can write a little note and attach it to his chest and send him to Caesar, and we can get this whole thing over with. And so that sets the stage for um, probably the greatest speech that Paul ever gave, a powerful, amazing speech, because here he is with King Agrippa, and he can't wait to tell his story again. He's not going to defend himself. He's going to share what happened to him. He's going to share what God had done in his life. And it really is, um, it's one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts, is seeing Paul, this little guy, little dirty, grimy prisoner, standing up and speaking to King Agrippa. And at one point, Festus tries to butt in, and Paul just kind of you know, Festus, I know you don't understand this, but Agrippa will understand this, so you just go ahead and, and be a governor, and I'll talk to the king for a moment here. But uh, a great chapter and a powerful, what ended it for Paul really until he would then go in the last couple chapters, we'll see him uh, heading, heading to Rome, finally getting there where ultimately he would end up being killed. But um, the more you read about Paul and you imagine what these things would look like and you see the relationship he had with the Lord, 
the courage that he had before government officials, the wisdom that he had, you just go, this guy was something really, really special. And um, I love reading about him. And it, it gives us so much insight into all Paul's letters. I believe Paul wrote 14 books of the New Testament. And, and here we're getting his story and we're seeing what he was like and what was behind all that went on that became much of the New Testament that we have today. So great stuff. Um, let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for, I think of Luke, a doctor, historian, and for him to hook up with Paul, travel with him, get all the details of all these stories and write them down in such a, an accurate way. We wouldn't know about this stuff, most of it, had he not recorded it. And so we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to inspire Dr. Luke to write these chapters and to tell us these stories. And Lord, as we read these, we're, we're challenged. We realize, God, that in so many ways we miss opportunities that you give us to tell our story. And, and many times we, we don't have the passion to be willing to endure discomfort in order to have an opportunity for your spirit to work. And Lord, we also, if Paul needed to be encouraged by you, we do as well. If there are people today here tonight who are, encouraged, who are discouraged and they need to hear from you, God, I pray that you would tell them you're the same God. All that you did in those days, you can continue to do even greater things in our lives if we allow you to. Help us not to give up on you. Help us to know that we're going to end up going wherever you're taking us. We'll get there. And so we thank you so much and just for giving us this time to be together and to study your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, it's late, so...